When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, Episode 76, The Life of Griffith Ap Kinnon, Part 1. When we last talked about the beginnings of the Norman invasion of Wales, we talked a lot about how they slowly creeped into the south, as well as how their influence over Wales changed the nature of the country and how it regarded itself. It was during this point, in fact, that we see the people of Wales speaking of themselves as Cymru rather than British. While the king of Britain still exists, the very nature of Wales changed inexorably away from the old Roman notions of a united island people dealing with interlopers called Saxons to a new phase of the people as people of the land, as comrades in arms, comrades in life, and in point blunt fact were no longer linking themselves to the old Roman Britain or the idea that they could remake Roman Britain once more. As well as the change in verbiage, the Welsh saw Powys rising again out from the shadows of Gwyneth. The death of Blethyn, the king of Gwyneth, had forced the kingdom to deal with internal issues rather than external ones. Their ability to push their own power had changed and had drastically reduced for a time. Traherm ap Caradog, the king of Gwyneth, had risen to power at the death of Blethyn in 1073. And because of this, his first cousins once removed, the sons of Blethyn, were forced to take over Powys while their cousin ran Gwyneth. However, in the shadows lurked the descendants of Rodri the Great. Those Mervians once again were ready to ascend one last time to the throne of the old stalwarts of the northwest. Griffith Afkinnon was one of these heirs, and the start of the final dynasty to rule Gwyneth, and really, honestly, the last dynasty that ruled over the remains of what was the Welsh kingdoms. Griffiths was born in Dublin, and was the son of one of the former rulers of Gwyneth. His maternal line, however, had links to the Dublin Vikings, and they were actually known as the Silkbeard, which is an awesome name because it probably meant somebody in that lineage had some really great hair, and uh, definitely not pillager Vikings. Yeah, right. Uh, But nonetheless, interesting to kind of see that. His grandfather, Iago, was killed when Llewellyn rose to power, and his father, Kinnan, was probably at best only briefly on the throne of Gwyneth, if at all, after the death of the last king of Britain, and before Harold's choice, Blethyn, came to power. As a claimant to the throne and heir to the family of Rodri, 
they had to flee to Dublin to avoid being killed or captured. Obviously, Kennan couldn't stay in Gwyneth and expect to survive. And most of the Welsh kings were well known for taking care of those that were related to previous dynasties, uh, as has been proven in the past. And obviously, they would make no exception for this young man. Um, he would then marry uh, Regnelt, who is the daughter of Olaf, which is about as Viking of a name as you're going to find. And they then started to have their family. And shortly after the birth of Griffith, or possibly around the time he was born, his father Kinnan died. This loss meant that Griffith was raised predominantly in his Viking family. Now, hilariously, he is described as being a very well-mannered child. Of course, that's not the hilarious part, but rather that he was brought up delicately, which is a very strange turn of phrase, if you want to be truthful, in an era of Vikings and a son of a Viking, um, mostly known for their violent tendencies. But nonetheless, that's what the life tells us. So that's kind of what we have to go on. Um, Griffith himself was not content to be a Viking. He was, after all, an heir to a mighty name and an ancient kingdom. He likely saw this as a way to reunite Welsh kings and Irish kings with the old ally Gwyneth. And, as we know, the Irish were likely instrumental in establishing this kingdom in post-Roman times. So with that in mind, with the help of the Irish and likely some Viking allies, he prepared to return to his kingdom, as he saw it, while the various Welsh kingdoms dealt with the marcher lords. His first intervention was to attack Anglesey at the death of Blethyn. Somewhere between 1073 and 1075, the uh, Chronicle of the Princes mentions he capture, he goes to the island. And in fact, in the life, it describes him having gone and talked to the nobles of Anglesey to try and bring them on board. And I think in some ways there was thoughts that he was preparing to set up his government there. Um, he would also talk to people of Flynn and would actually go and set up conversations with other cantons in the area of Gwyneth and closer to the border with Powys. So the reality is, is that he was working heavily to try and angle himself as kind of the obvious ruler. Uh, as a brief aside, we need to talk about our sources for this information. Uh, one, of course, is the Chronicle of the Princes, which I just mentioned earlier, um, which it was felt was written predominantly in the South, especially this copy that I have, um, which might explain why they feature Southern kings so heavily, and specifically from Dovid and from Doithbarth over the Northern kingdoms. While we do have the first real personal biography, The Life of Griffith ap Kynan, written within possibly as early as 50 years after his death, as we've noted, these sources can be slightly skewed, including factual errors, propaganda, and in a number of them, some fantastic additions that are more fiction than fact. As an example, included in this story is a legend about Merlin predicting Griffith's coming and that of a prophetess who appears to him in Anglesey and predicts great things in his life and that he will eventually be king. Of course, when you take this story at face value, then it's an interesting one and it sort of be betrays some weirdness about it, which, which sounds more um, older Welsh kind of pagan feel to it rather than a Christian era feel to it. 
uh, as well. It gives you, again, that sense of mythology and legend that's built up around guys like this. And definitely take all of that with a grain of salt because almost 99.9% .9 sure none of that probably happened. Uh, but nonetheless, it is a part of this life, which is written, it, it claimed to have been written in the as late as the 13th century. So we still have a document that's relatively close to the time period we're talking about. It's written from a Welsh perspective with a Welsh ideal, probably written by people who were writing to the kings of the time, who, of course, were descendants of this man. So there is a reason for it, and there's a reason why they're pumping him up, for lack of a better word. Uh, and so we have to take that into account when we're listening to these stories and, and talking about this life. So while all of this is going on and Griffiths is trying to consolidate his power with several no nobles across Gwyneth, uh, and with that support, he then attacks the king and basically he fails miserably. But the, the claim in the book, in, in the story, uh, the life is he was betrayed by his nobles and this will be something of a, a consistent storyline but it's a storyline all through the welsh history when you listen to what goes on with the kings a lot of it comes down to betrayal by somebody at some point which leads to their untimely end and it's very rare that you have kings who die in their beds because of this and so again he's betrayed defeated as they're losing, his troops get him out of the field of battle, and he flees back to Dublin uh, in disgrace, I would, I would argue, um, and having failed once again to take, thing, take back his, the kingdom of his ancestors. Um, meanwhile, while he's trying to, uh, re trying to get the men and materials he needs to come back and re- take over his his uh, kingdom Triherne the actual king is busy trying to put an end to the guy who killed his cousin Blethyn and he defeats the king of Darthbarth Resap Owen and with the death of this Reese another Reese comes to power in Darthbarth this one friendlier to uh, Triherne and his name is Reese Ap Tudor uh he then ascends to the throne. You may remember him because he was mentioned in a previous episode, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. With this revenge achieved, Trehorn may have had the ability to use that victory to justify why his men should be loyal to him. Reason why is because Griffiths has returned from Dublin after begging for help. And in this case, he has with him Vikings and Irish, as well as uh, his loyal Welsh supporters, who I'm sure he has some. Uh, and they again take Anglesey. But this time he runs into a bigger issue because the Vikings are not happy with not being paid. Uh, it appears that in the version of the story from the life, he stops them from pillaging the area. Uh, this may or may not be true. We don't fundamentally know. But what we do know is that they get mad at this stage and they take him prisoner. Um, it's an interesting idea that they would then take him prisoner, still then go on a pillaging spree to get 
their pay. And that's what I figure it was more likely about is that he kind of overpromised and underdelivered when they got there. And that is a difficult thing to do when you got mercenaries. You can't afford to have your mercenaries turn on you. So typically you try not to get into those circumstances and you try very hard to keep them happy. So it is interesting to see what, what happened there and how that caused them problems and specifically gets him captured and taken back to Ireland yet again. Meanwhile, while this is going on or shortly thereafter, the Normans then invade with the Earl of Chester and with Paus allies, although they don't explain who these people are, and possibly even one of the pretenders to the Gwyneth throne. And they go through and cause all sorts of trouble for Gwyneth, causing what's called the Tribulations of Gwyneth in the life. Um, in fact, it says one of the areas was wasted to the point where it is a desert uh, in the phraseology of the life. Take it for granted that that's probably not completely accurate. Griffiths, on the other hand, again, once more returns to Ireland, this time probably more bitter than ever, as he again was betrayed. Again, his own men betrayed him and caused this problem. So once again, he goes begging and pleading to his relatives in Ireland. And this time, instead of going north and trying to take Anglesey, they actually go to Doithbarth. Uh, then there's a very elaborate story as to why Griffith would make an ally with Resap Tudor, uh, the king of Doithbarth. And basically the story goes on a very long descriptive terminology. And depending on who you accept as telling the truth, the life plays it off as if uh, Reese thought that Griffith had betrayed him and that because of that, he then turned around and went and betrayed him back, if I was to read this properly, um, in effect that he went then and turned back to his ally or erstwhile ally, Traherne, and fought with him in this battle. So I don't know how much you can take that as face value. If it's true, then Griffiths looks really, really foolish a lot of times in this storyline because, again, he's betrayed by somebody and, again, it gets him into trouble. This time, however, he has the men and material to win. And somewhere between 1079 and 1081, and I would kind of lean towards the 1079 more than the 1081, Griffith attacks Traherne, and we'll go into why that is. And his allies kill all of these kings. Both Traherne and Rhys die here. And in the process, this destabilizes both the north and the south. And Griffiths, instead of taking over and kind of consolidating his power, appears to go on a power trip and starts just wrecking stuff. Like he's getting his revenge for everything that happened from the betrayal of Powys uh, in, the, in the slaughter of what happened with Gwyneth to dealing with Doithbarth very harshly. And in the process of time, he will create an advantage point which the Normans can look at and say, hey, we'll move in now and take some of this for ourselves. So in a way, his revenge is overwrought, overly destructive, and really seemingly brought an end to the southern Welsh kingdoms because 
the Normans are already there, the, the Marcher Lords are already moving forward, they're already pushing into Doithbarth territory. By the end of this, they will have taken the complete southern half of Wales, and it'll only be west and north Wales that survives. And so you have this disaster that happens. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of people that aren't terribly happy with Griffiths at this point. He has made a lot of enemies, both in the English camps, probably with even amongst the Irish at this stage, who are probably furious with him over what's happened in the past and his constant appeals for more troops. And likely, be, one could argue that part of the reason why his revenge was so harsh is because his mercenary buddies, again, need to get paid. And how do they get paid? If your, you know, boss, in effect, or your your client hasn't got the ability to pay up on his own, well, in pillaging and taking land and territory and slaves, of course, slavery is still hot and heavy in this era, and all the jewels and gold and, you know, anything that isn't nailed down, basically. In fact, the life goes to the point of bringing up the fact that one of the churches is raided, that... I mean, it talks about, like, total destruction of certain things, which you always have to take that for granted is probably not completely correct. It's probably more for dramatic purpose to kind of show his anger um, rather than actual fact. But nonetheless, this is a guy who was upset, was wanting to take his revenge on these people. And in the process of this, again, he doesn't create friends. He creates new enemies. And in this case... One of his enemies is a, a tremendously named person called Mirian the Red, who basically runs off and gets quite upset over all of this. And he goes to the Earl of Chester, Hugh, and tells him how to figure out who Griffiths is. And so when the Normans come through and invade again, Griffiths really hasn't even got time to take the throne and become, you know a king in proper sense. I mean, this must have happened fairly quickly afterwards. He gets captured. He's taken to Chester and thrown in jail. Surprisingly, he's not executed. And it appears that he's not completely, like, locked up as we would think of a jail. But rather, he may have been at one point, but then was released to sort of wander around, is what I would gather, because his escape comes in a very strange way for somebody who would have been in jail or in the stocks or something along that line. Um, so, but nonetheless, he's captured and captive for 16 years. Now that's why I say it's more likely that it was more like 1079 rather than 1081, because by the time he comes back on the scene, it's now the middle of the 1090s and there isn't enough time comparatively for 16 years to have gone by. And we're talking 1094, so we're not even talking close to that if that's, so I lean much more towards 10, 1079. Uh, by 1085, William the Conqueror is dead, and of course his son, William Rufus, will now rule England. Uh, that'll be important because he will do some things in a little bit which will cause the Welsh to revolt. Uh, according to the Welsh Chronicles of the Princes, between 1091 and 1093, the Normans had overrun Dyfeth and Caragidion, uh, and with the death of Resap Tudor II... Uh, the king of Doithbarth. He was killed again, this time by Cadgwen Apledin, who is the lord of Powys and the son of Blethyn. This is the same guy who plunders Dovid. 
and in the process weakens it to the point where it's super easy for the Normans to take over. They then enter the winter, the weakened kingdom, and they're unable to resist the Normans, and it fell largely into their hands. And as I said earlier, the, the south has completely fallen to the Norman marcher lords, leaving a rump version of Doithbarth left, along with the northern powerhouses of Powys and, of course, Gwyneth. So, of course, this then cr creates the point that we talked about last time, which is that the daughter of Rhys Nest, who is captured and then taken by the Norman lords after the death of her father, uh, and becomes sort of a power play and a propaganda point um, for both sides in this battle between the two of them, and in fact becomes a point of contention. Uh, meanwhile, as she's having all of that happen to her, uh, Griffiths would eventually be carried out of Chester by some Welsh loyalists and eventually spirited back to Gwyneth. He then had arrived, all right, to his kingdom, <laughs> and with a small band of loyalists and not much else, worn, sick, and probably tired and probably malnutritioned, it took him a while to nurse himself back into a semblance of the man he probably used to be. But now the former king was ready to advance and take advantage of what was now becoming the unrest in Wales. And he had learned his lessons that had been well taught about ruling and how to rule properly. And things are about to change for Griffith in a way that we're not able to initially see. And of course, this is a heroic story that's written by the victors talking about their famous ancestor. So again, we're always shown Griffith as being doggedly determined to take back his kingdom and being someone who was predicted to be this fabulous king and this heir to a massive dynasty of amazing importance to Britain and to Wales. And so, of course, you know, he's going to succeed. This is obvious. This is history, you know, and all of that kind of thing. So with all that taken into into account, uh, we're going to stop here and we're going to pick this story up next time and we'll continue to talk about how he does gain the kingdom and how he keeps it for the next 40 years and becomes the king that they need to set up the new dynasty. And with that, I'd like to thank you. I, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, you can always reach me at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at welshhistorypod, or you can come to Facebook and talk to me there at facebook.com forward slash welshhistorypodcast. And uh, if you want to find out all the things that we do and all the entertaining stuff we're up to, you can find everything we do at, at distractionsmedia.com. Until next time, everyone, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening, and take care. Bye-bye. Edge of the Abyss Creations is a proud sponsor of the Welsh History Podcast, your one-stop shop for unique jewelry, paintings, and other crafty creations. You can find us at facebook.com slash edgeoftheabyss1. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more info, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. 
we try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you.